Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. In this hot real estate market, you need to be extra careful how much you pay for properties. Some experts think there's extra risk in Class C right now because the valuations don't support the risk. A lot of these properties have functional obsolescence that some operators aren't prepared for. Today's guest, Bill Ham, is COO of Broadwell Property Group in Atlanta. Bill invests in and syndicates properties within an hour plane ride of Atlanta that provide at least 6% cash on cash on the front end of the deals. This morning, we have a gentleman who hails from the uh, great controversial state of Georgia these days. And uh, he just wrote a book called Creative Cash on Real Estate Financing. And But that's just what he's done recently. He's been around the business for a long time as an operator, as a manager, done all kinds of things. And so, Bill Ham, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on the show. And I am from the extremely controversial city of Atlanta. <laughs> no choice of my own, but uh, you, you nailed that one. Yeah. Yeah. Controversy within controversy. Well, no uh, gosh, man, I, that's a different and longer podcast. I bet. I bet. Yeah. Well, so, and I guess the question is, are you like, are you born and bred Atlanta or, or just been there for a number of years? Like where did the, the Bill Ham story start? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm actually from Macon, Georgia, which is about a small town, about an hour and a half south of Atlanta. I'm pretty much born in Savannah, Georgia. So I'm Southern and, and from Georgia originally, but I uh, grew up in Macon, Georgia and have lived in Atlanta on and off throughout my life, but I have been here as an adult for the last uh, six years or so and, and been doing a lot of uh, real estate transactions between middle Georgia and Atlanta. I see. Well, you know, when I hear Macon, Georgia, the only person I know from there is, is uh, James Brown. That's right. Oh, we have the Almond Brothers. We had Little Richard. We had, oh, uh, give me a minute. <laughs> There's a bunch of music uh, people come from Macon, Georgia. That I was just did not know. I didn't know that yeah. the Almond Brothers are, were from mm-hmm. Macon specifically. Yep. They're, they're actually buried in Rose Hill Cemetery. Wow. Well, you know, when you say they, I forgot that Greg Almond passed away a couple of right. few Dickie years Betts. ago. Yeah, they're all there. Oh, and Dickie Betts died too? Uh, or is he the, I think, uh, no, wait, what's the other one? Am I getting wrong? I'm not a big Almond Brothers fan. So let me, let me throw that disclaimer out there. I know, is it Dwayne Almond's bit, right? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it would be Dwayne and Greg. I think Dickie Betts is maybe, still. Maybe that's it. Maybe they're all still alive. Yeah. I just remember there's like a space in there, the Almond Brothers, and they kind of have it fenced off and, and all of that good stuff. Uh, so yeah, wh- whoever the Almond Brothers are, uh, and if you're a fan of the Almond Brothers, then, then they're all from Macon, Georgia. I'm not an Almond Brothers expert. Well, I, I'm a, I'm an old old man, and so I kind of like the Almond um, Brothers, and um, you know, and still do. But no, nonetheless, and so you were born in Savannah. So are you yeah. like are you are you multi generation Georgian, like going back, you know, way back, like or how far back? Uh, yeah, I believe we are multi generational. I I know it, that of um, that I'm aware of at least four generations. Beyond that, I'm not really sure. I'd have to go do that uh, whole 23andMe or the family tree thing or something of that nature. But I, I know we're at least four or five generations back. Yeah. Got it. Well, Savannah's a super cool town for sure. 
And then did you uh, stay in state for college or where did you do that? I did. I went to uh, Macon State College, actually. It's now called Middle Georgia College, I believe. They changed the name. It was Macon State when I went there some years back. I see. And then how did you ultimately kind of wend your way into the real estate business? Ah, that was monkey see, monkey do. I, uh, I'm a, I was a pilot by trade, uh, flying airplanes, um, sort of was a flight instructor. And I went through the 9-11 crash and then got stuck as a flight instructor for a lot longer than I had planned on because the aviation industry really just took a beating after, after 9-11. And um, was flying corporate, ultimately got a job flying corporate for uh, a physician there in town. It was a good job. And I saw friends of mine like this is now this is back in 2003, 2004. I saw friends of mine flipping houses and, and I thought, wait a minute now, I got up and went to work today. You all went and flipped a house. You made as much money as I made, like going to work all year long. And, and we were both at the bar drinking last night. Like, wait a second, something is wrong with this picture. So I, I studied for a while. I, I spent a lot of time kind of educating myself about a year, just reading and studying all the books that most people read. And uh, I closed my very first deal, which was a duplex. And I quit the job. I had $10,000 saved up. The duplex was making 300 bucks. And uh, I turned in the aviation uh, keys and walked out and went into real estate full time on a wing and a prayer. You know, let me be clear. I was 28 years old at the time. Uh, you know, no, no children, no real debt. Uh, so that's the carve out there. It was a lot easier for me to do that. But uh, yeah, just went headlong into real estate. Been here ever since. When you say good going back a bit, a minute, flying corporate for a physician. So you're talking about just some like wealthy doctor that had a plane and you flew it for him. Correct. He had a medical supply company. So he was a neurosurgeon, obviously doing well as a doctor. But he was also a business owner. So he had created a company that was involved in creating some, some uh, technology, medical technology. And so this company was in Deland, Florida, and we were in Macon, Georgia. And so th basically this individual could get up in the morning and, and do brain surgery in the morning, fly to Florida, work on his company in Florida and be home for dinner. Uh, and that was, that was due to me shuffling him back and forth. As, as his corporate pilot. And we, of course, we went other areas as well, but that was the main trip. So in that role, do you like dress up as a pilot or you, can you just wear your street clothes? No, and working for him, I, I was relatively casual. I always dress business casual, you know, khaki, slack, something like that. But no, I didn't wear the captain's uniform with the stripes and the wings. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> okay. It's just a weird, <laughs> weird question, I admit. I don't even know why. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Nobody's ever asked me that before. I like that. <laughs> okay. So so you buy a duplex when you're 28, it's cash flow and 300 bucks a month, and, and you've seen the light. And so then 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 what was the move from there? more, you know, just, just doubling down, doubling down. I just kept doing it. I, I flipped houses. Oh, probably the first couple of years of business. Uh, next phase was starting to build a portfolio of single families that I was holding to own and operate. Um, kind of the, the next aha moment was listening to a speaker, uh, one of these, you know, gurus talk about multifamily and I, I got the bug. I thought, you know, that's for me. Apartments are for me. And the, what I really realized was the concept of economy of scale. You know, I could manage 10 houses or a hundred apartments, all with about the same amount of energy and effort. You know, 10 houses spread around the city is a lot to deal with, but a, a pack of house, a pack of apartments on one location 
you know, you get economy of scale. So that's when I started getting into staffing and bringing on um, employees, you know, things of that nature, which really ultimately helped me uh, accelerate the business higher up. Um, kind of transition from being a landlord into being a real estate business owner. Um, but it took some time, but that was sort of the, the trajectory. And, and were those houses and then at that time in the first multifamily of scale, was that in Atlanta? No, actually it was in Macon. So my first 402 units, I was able to do without using any traditional financing. And I, and I mean, traditional financing as in a lender, you know, bank, Fannie, Freddie, I was able to do the first 402 units with all creative financing. And that was all done in Macon, Georgia. Um, so from houses, I'm trying to remember my next one was a, my, my first quote unquote multifamily was a nine unit in a really bad area. And uh, then I did a 20 unit, a 27 unit, 44, 108, and then 152, and then so on. So it was it was a linear progression. I didn't go from houses into large commercial. It was a step-by-step process. But all of that was done in, in middle Georgia. Got it. Wow. Okay. And so even like the, the, the 100 and the 152 and the 44, all creative financing. In, in, Correct. Okay. The 152, I got seller finance. I syndicated. I did a full syndication, meaning going out, raising money from investors, doing a private placement memorandum. But the debt on the 152 units was actually carried by the seller for two years. And then my uh, general partner and I in that deal were able to refinance into a Fannie Mae loan, pay the seller off, and actually cash out and give back our investors uh, about 80% of their investment. And I um, still own that property today, uh, almost 10 years later. That sounds like a uh, fantastic story. Yeah, it was good. It's a good deal. Yeah, it, it can be done. Um, it's, you know, creative financing works better in certain market cycles. Now, being honest, it hasn't worked that well over the last, oh, you know, four, five, six years because the market has been in such heavy incline. You know, creative financing works very well when a seller has a problem or a need. Today's market being sort of pretty, pretty inflated and pretty hot, sellers that have problems and needs can usually just put the property on the market and sell it and get, you know, asking price plus a dollar sort of. And, uh, you know, but I, I am predicting going forward that we're going to see not a crash, not like 08, but definitely a pullback and a reduction in value. And the first area that's going to get hit are older buildings and, and the properties that are not performing perfectly. And, uh, and so that's why I kind of think uh, creative financing is going to be something that comes back up in the near future. It's, it's very market cycle specific. You know, you're, you're reminding me what it was when I heard you on the podcast I heard you on that made me want to talk to you is this, is this view that we're going to hiccup a little bit. And give me your thinking about that and why older buildings and I, I guess your view of where we are in the cycle and et cetera, et cetera, because I find that really interesting. Yeah, um, I, I am basically predicting sort of a K-shape to our real estate economy going forward. And I'm not using the term K-shape recovery because I don't really think it's going to be a recovery. I think we're about to see a bifurcation in our real estate world. And, and if anybody's not familiar, we basically have four categories of real estate, A, B, C, and D. You know, A's being brand new, B's being sort of new. C's are our general workforce housing, our affordable housing space, and the D's are the sort of older, pretty high crime, tough areas. I believe that the A's and the B's are going to uh, go up and those will be fine in value. 
I believe the, the C's and the D's and the, the sort of affordable housing in America is facing an upcoming problem that we have never experienced in American history before. And the problem is a, a vast majority of our organic affordable housing. Organic affordable housing means a property that is just sort of aged into affordable. It was never built like a, a low-income housing tax credit property. Sometimes we build new properties that are affordable housing. I'm talking about a, organic affordable housing. It's getting really old. And, and it's what I'm calling the CapEx tsunami or capital expense tsunami. And a lot of the properties, multifamily specifically, that were built in the 60s and the 70s are having infrastructure problems. And that is a big term we're hearing in, in the world, the news and politics today is infrastructure, infrastructure. I agree. But we have an infrastructure issue in our affordable housing space. And it's really basically things like plumbing, roofs, um, old electrical. You know, these properties were built in the 1960s and 1970s, reaching physical obsolescence. Uh, that's that's a that's a, the the piper that's going to get paid here soon. You know, that's a problem that's going to rear its ugly head here soon. And I am afraid that right now people are turning a blind eye to the expenses that are about to be inside some of these older buildings. And what's going to happen is politics, I believe, and I'm not a very political person, but I believe politics are going to move more in favor of tenants and less in favor of landlords over the next three to five years. So we're going to have politics that are really going to make landlords forcibly go in and repair these properties and maintain these affordable housing buildings, kind of like we see in New York and some of our northern states. And that's going to crush the value of those old buildings. And that's where I'm saying we're going to see a split, this K shape where the A's and the B's go up and the C's and the D's go way down. And there is where you're going to see that creative financing uh, become very prevalent. It's in dealing with these old buildings that your traditional financing is not going to be that uh, aggressive on lending on. And that's going to create problems for sellers. Wow, that's, you know, that's so interesting. It seems like there are operators, you know, in, in this environment, it just seems like every asset class and maybe not D as much. I can't speak to it, um, but like C, it seems like there's just, you know, like A and B, it just seems like there's so much money going after workforce housing, you know, with big cap X budgets. Um, and, and so it, it just, it, it seems like it's an environment where there's no rock overturn and so that those buildings are being acquired and, um, you know, value added, you know, steep value add. So I, or, or do you just think that as much as that's the case, you know, it still doesn't speak to the amount of owners that aren't selling that are just sitting there milking, you know, obsolete properties. Yeah, I, I actually am going to use the term bubble. <laughs> and I hate to even hear myself say that, but I, I think that space is in a bubble. And I think that it is that that space has been over syndicated and that a lot of people uh, at this round of purchasing, and I'm not going to speak the last two or three years, but this sort of latest round of transactions are highly speculative. And what people are doing is they're looking at these very old buildings, overpaying for them, buying them at a very low cap rate and saying, but that's OK. We'll just raise the rents. We'll go in here and do this, this and this, and we'll just raise the rents. Well, you know, if your business model only exists to impoverish your tenant base further, you can only get so much you know, blood out of a stone and then it doesn't work. 
And that's my concern is that people are overestimating the amount of money that they're going to be able to get out of the affordable housing space in the future. You're basically saying, hey, we're going to take affordable housing and make it completely unaffordable. And then we'll all make a lot of money. Careful, careful, careful. I think that's a very risky business model right now. Um, I think that does work when you're paying a six or a seven or an eight cap for, for a 1960 product. When you're buying it at a four cap rate, oh, and you have plumbing and roofs and, and, and the only justification for that is to say, we're just going to raise the rent. Well, if you're, if you're going to raise rents on affordable housing, then you have to, to assume that the tenant base will be wealthier in 2021, 2022, 2023, than they were over the last two or three years. And so if you believe that the the average workforce tenant will be wealthier in the next two years, then you have a solid business model. If you honestly can't say that these tenants are about to get a bunch of pay raises and a bunch of, of you know uh, cost of living increases, and they're going to make a whole lot more money at work, then I'm saying your business model is extremely risky. Buyer beware. I guess what what if what if you have like a C property with a lot of deferred maintenance, but it's in a B neighborhood? That's great. Just don't overpay for it. Right. See, it's it's the purchase price. And, and let me let me kind of stop here and say I love workforce housing. I love the C space. I love renovating properties. I think that's a great business model. You just can't overpay for it. Overpaying for real estate is the gift that just keeps on giving or taking, <laughs> you know? And so that's, that's what I think the problem today is that the, it's been over-speculated and there's, there's where the pullback will occur is that people have just over-speculated that, that asset class. Sounds like it could be an opportunity, you know, Agreed. at some point in time. That's you- why I wrote the book <laughs> because that- I believe there's going to be a tremendous amount of opportunity in that space. But at the same time, I don't believe there's going to be a, a, a tremendous amount of traditional financing for distressed C-class assets and that we're all going to need some, some tools in our toolbox to go out and solve seller problems. And this is going to be, in my opinion, a big shift in wealth. And it's, it's kind of like the last recession. I've been through that. And I saw a lot of people that, that did not have an opportunity to ever get into real estate get in because they learned how to solve problems. And that's what I teach all my students. And that's what I've wrote this book, written this book about is to show people how to create value for a seller by being a problem solver. And that's better than cash. Wow. Well, I hope, uh, I hope you have a lot of people buy the book. I'm sure you will. So uh, far, so good. So far, so good. How many copies? Number one bestseller on Amazon. How many copies? Uh, we're uh, like 1,200 or so since, since uh, February. Congratulations. And that, that'll be a hockey stick. It won't be linear. That's the way those things go. So, but interesting that you are confident, uh, even though we're like, it, we're on a 10 year bull run, you know, a little bit of a hiccup with uh, this thing called COVID, but you still see A's and B's going up, huh? I do. I, I do for a, a number of reasons. I, I think that real estate is, especially real estate in, in America is always going to be a sought after asset class. Uh, and, and so I think that there's going to be a flight to quality and that as the C space gets unpredictable, the sophisticated dollar will go towards the newer asset, the more stable asset. Number one, number two, inflation. I mean, with the feds creating the dollars that they're creating at the moment, I don't see how we have anything but inflation. And that that's all you're going to see that uh, inflationary dollar 
being reflected in the A and the B space more than the C and the D space. You'll see some in all categories, but more to the upper side, my opinion. Okay. So what was interesting to me, uh, just doing a little bit of background on you, you're now COO of, of Broadway Property Group. Broadwell. I'm, I'm sorry. Am I the only person? I wish it was Broadway. <laughs> Broadwell. <laughs> Am I the only person that's made that mistake? You are not. You know, I'm just trying to dig myself out of being a- Let me hand you a shovel. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, all right, I'll shut up now. I'm an idiot. Okay. Yes, of, of Broadwell. And that's fairly mm-hmm. recent. That's like in the last year, year and a half correct. or so. About a year and a half now. Yeah, correct. Got it. And tell me about, Bill, how that came together in what were you were doing previously, I think you're still doing, but give, give me the whole take on that. Yeah, still doing what I was always doing. I'm just now doing it with a really good partner, a fellow named Tony Morgan. He's our CEO. I am the COO of Broadwell Property Group. And um, one of my big give, one, I love teaching and I love talking real estate. And sort of pre-COVID, um, one of the one of my big givebacks was I was running a meetup group and I, I would go out and uh, our meetup group would bring in uh, 40, 50 people a month and I would give an hour and a half lectures completely free. And, um, you know, Tony Morgan happened to come in to one of my lectures and uh, and we met and the rest was history. He kind of approached me and said that he had just recently exited a very successful exit from a tech company. Actually, he had a data center. And if you watch the news, data centers are all the rage right now. So he had uh, had a very successful exit from a data center business that he had for, I believe, about 20 years. And so he and his capital wanted to go into the multifamily space. And he looked at me and said, hey, you you're the gatekeeper. You have the information and education I'm looking for. We we sat down, had lunch and the rest is history. Here we are. Broadwell Property Group. To you really, it was like you had lunch and then you, you agreed to do it. And then obviously there were details, you know, clearly, but it was really like that, huh? More or less. Yeah. Wow. And so essentially, see, so he's, he's kind of the capital behind it. He, he is. Yes, correct. That sounds like a fantastic thing. And kudos to you to, you know, to, to, to starting the meetup. And, and, you know, it's funny how things come together when you put yourself out there. Um, and so I guess, what are you doing and what are you endeavoring to do in terms of asset class? I'm beginning to get a sense that you're thinking there clearly, but markets and et cetera. Yeah. Our, our sort of rule of thumb on market is we're, we're here in Atlanta, obviously. And uh, we, we say we'd like to be within a one hour plane flight of Atlanta. So you can kind of draw that one hour plane flight uh, circle around Atlanta. And that's what we would consider our market. So largely speaking, sort of Virginia to Miami, you know, East Coast, that kind of Southern East, Southeastern market is where we generally look. Now I'll look at any opportunity anywhere, but that's kind of our general uh, space that we like to stay in. A little bit of a flight to quality right now. I, I really like B's and, and you know low A's, newer product. Basically my concept is if I'm gonna overpay for real estate, at least I'm gonna overpay for something nice. I don't wanna <laughs> overpay for an older building. Uh, you know, so I think everybody's going to have to overpay some. That's just the devil we have to dance with in this market. But um, at least we're, we're, you know, we we bring on a lot of investor money. We syndicate our deals. Uh, we we put our own money in as well. But I'm very careful when it comes to someone else's money. You know, I've I've got a lot of scars and a lot of bruises from this real estate uh, career and a lot of lessons learned. And so I've I've learned to be very careful when dealing with someone else's money. So that's why we're we're. Looking at deals, we're not being overly aggressive at the moment, but um, you know we're, we're we're doing some business, nice and steady. 
So, so tell me about the scars and bruises. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, how, how long is this going to go? We got a couple hours. Uh, no. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, um, I've made a ton of money and I've lost a ton of money and, and learned from all the, all the above. Um, I have uh, done uh, you know, Dean Lua foreclosure. I've had to write some checks to, to bring to recapitalize assets back in the last recession uh, that went upside down on me. Nothing recently, nothing in the last 10 years, but um, early on uh, some, some failures. One of my biggest mistakes, really uh, probably the, the best thing I can share with listeners was being overly confident, arrogantly confident in my network. Uh, you know, I, I thought I had a great network and I went out and put a deal under contract that was, yeah, it was an all right deal. It wasn't a great deal. And uh, I thought, oh, I, I've, I know all these people. Everybody will just give me money. And so I went out and put the property under contract. I was wrong. The, the mistake was I didn't really follow up and keep my network um, informed. And, and so I I guess what I'm trying to say is a stack of business cards, a network does not make, <laughs> you know, I, I had people, I had business cards, but not relationships. And so I go out and put up $150,000 worth of earnest money, believing that uh, I, I had better relationships than I did, failed in the raise and lost the 150000 in earnest money. So it, it's all about relationships, not contacts. Boy, there's a lesson learned. Yeah, 150000 of them all at once. Well, hey, at least compared to some of the stuff I've done where I've lost that amount of money and sometimes candidly uh, more, they were agonizing, long, drawn out, you know, excruciating experiences. The biggest one, I probably lost a half a million bucks. It wasn't real estate, but, you know, it's kind of like, would you rather like die, you know, like of a heart attack that just kills you immediately? Or would you rather have like, you know, an excruciating battle with yeah, cancer death of a thousand for, cuts for 10 years? Yeah. So at least 100, at least that was fast. Yeah, that was that was your thunderclap. You just dropped dead from it. Right. Of <laughs> 150 and, 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 you know, you'd rather have it be that. That was like the heart attack and then it's over kind of thing compared. Yeah, to absolutely. Like, yeah. You know, in, in my my issue was the mental recovery, the mental and emotional recovery from the mistake. That was that was the hardest part. You know, I was putting my big boy pants back on and getting back in the game. That, that was hard. That was really difficult uh, after that kind of loss. You know, you, you blame yourself and it was my fault, but you really, I personally really took that uh, too seriously. And that was actually the real mistake. It wasn't the loss. It wasn't the 150 grand. It was sitting on the sidelines, feeling sorry for myself and allowing the market, a good buying market to kind of pass me by for a while before I, I got my head back on and jumped back in the, in the game. Once I got back in, I made the money back within like six months, but it was sitting on the sideline you know, feeling sorry for myself, that was the real failure. Well, it's an interesting point. You know, I, I, uh, made so many mistakes along the way in real estate, outside of real estate. And, uh, you know, for a long, long, long time, I kind of flagellated myself. I was so angry at myself for years, for years, by the way. And I guess just so much time has gone by. I've eventually just forgiven myself. And I just realized that, you know, for every decision I made, there was a rationale at the time that made sense, you know, and, but to your point though, I eventually did figure out that if you keep beating yourself up, that actually can have costs too, because then, then there's opportunity costs that you're not out trying other stuff. 
so there's a real balance there. It's the key is learning from the mistake, I guess. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. And so, so are you guys, Bill, are you guys like, do, do you have an office or, you know, or are you guys working out of your homes respectively? No, no, we have an office. Uh, yeah, we, we have office that we work out of. That's cool. And so, I mean, how do you, how do you come to terms just with, and you know, and I appreciate your candor because you're just pretty much saying, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people go, no, we've, we've got the relationships, so we're still way paying the deep discount. And just because, you know, we know this market and we know the brokers and this, that, and you're being super, you know, candid, just saying, yep, yeah, we're overpaying like everybody else, but we're, we're super bullish on, you know, like you said, flight to quality on B&A. So I guess, you know, how do you reconcile and how, how do you kind of pivot to adapt to this marketplace and what's your criterion? What do you, what do you say yes to these days? Yeah, basically my, we, we syndicate our deals. So, you know, what I look at real estate as is a product that I need to be able to sell to, to my investors. I need to be able to create a product that they'll consume. So it's not really a question of what I think is a good deal or not a good deal. It's what will they invest in? And so you really kind of have to ask yourself, what's your cost of capital? That, that's what, you know, people say, what is a good deal? And I always say, well, what's your, what's, what do you pay for your money? Well, we know what we pay for 80% of our money. That's the bank, right? That's the interest rate. Yeah, but what do you pay for your investment dollars? And so I want to see that we can typically give our investors, you know, 8% as an example. I don't want to break any securities laws here, but as an example, we typically give out around 8% uh, preferred return. And I want to see that a fair amount of any pref that we're going to give to be produced by the cash flow of the asset within year one, without me having to do a bunch of uh, financial gymnastics to actually get that cash flow. I don't want to have to go in and raise rents and do this and do that and do all these things just to produce a return to my investors. I think that's a bit risky. So I want to see that the sales price allows me some profit walking in the door at closing without doing anything. So I'm, I'm not going to reward the seller with all the profit, me take all the risk. And then maybe someday after I, I crush my tenant base, I make some money. I, I'm not interested in that. So my criteria is that we need to probably see at least uh, 6% or so cash on cash going into a deal, you know, at, at closing. So 6% cash on cash on the front end before improvements, raising rents, before reducing expenses. I know that Atlanta is like just one of the markets that's just gone Zulu. And so, you know, is that doable, I guess, in Atlanta or, you know, some of these other markets? Well, I, I think we're asking the wrong question. It's not, is it doable? It's how often is it doable? Yes, it's doable. Just not very often. You know, admit it. We're, we're not closing deals every month over here. We're not but I don't care. We're not going to chase deals and we're not going to alter our criteria that we know is, is proven with a track record just so that we can go get another closing, just so we can get a fee. That's not who we are as a company. We'll, we'll sit, we'll, I'll go fishing. I'll go do something else before I risk someone's money uh, unnecessarily. So we either do or don't do deals, but we don't take unnecessary risks. So that means right now, yeah, most of my offers are not being accepted. Where it goes. Okay. And so um, in terms of like um, number of units, if there is such a thing, by the way, sure. it, minimum number of units kind of thing. 100 units. Got it. And, and is that because of that, that will support um, on-site management? Absolutely. Yes. We manage uh, our own properties 
And I certainly don't want to go sit in that leasing office. So, you know, I have to be able to put on-site staff on that property. My rule of thumb is about two employees per hundred units in the management space. So I want to see that at least I can have one you know, administrative person, i.e. manager, and then sort of one maintenance manager per 100 units. Uh, you know, that's what I call one in and one out. I want to see one in and one out, one in the office, one out of the office per 100. And that's why we kind of say the, the minimum would be 100, because below that, you start to manage that thing sort of on the hood of your car. You know, you got to drive over there for everything. You're signing leases on the hood of your car, this kind of thing. I, I have done that at length in my career. And I just don't do it anymore because I don't I don't need to. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think that if you're you're newer to the business, that's a great experience for you. But I think that you also need to build your business, you know, on up the ladder with time. And and I'm there now. So why why move backwards? I love that on the on the hood of your car. Since you and your guy, I I have it written down, but on another sheet of paper in the stack as I'm writing notes, it's yeah, Tony. Okay, since you and Tony got together, what's the acquisition arc look like? Like how many properties have you have you taken down? Two. We've closed two since we got together in the last year and a half. That's fantastic. You know, because I love it when people go, you know, we're we're just really, you know, we're really selective and you know, we've got our criterion that we're gonna adhere to it. And then you go, How many in and then you go, Well, how many, you know, do you guys acquire typically and they're you know a couple of months i'm like uh, yeah okay <laughs> yeah right <laughs> not know? in this market yeah you know what i mean um and there are, there are syndicators out there that are just very very aggressive and you know who they are and so do i and it just and i'm not even saying to say that they're not valid i i don't know but i'm just i, I kind of have a furrowed brow just going and you know and the story's always saying yeah you know we've got the broker relationships and they know we can close and yeah blah 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 and i just I'm just like, gosh, how does that, well, that work? That's one of the big areas that I'm pointing to that, that I think we're going to have a correction in the market is a, a lot of the underwriting that I see from people in the world right now. And it, and it sounds like you may have seen some of the same underwriting have really moved away from fundamentals. You know, and that's what I'm saying. They're just moving towards very, very speculative underwriting. Now, being Southerner, that's what we call pencil whipping. You're just pencil whipping a deal. You're, you're making it look good on paper, but can it be brought to fruition? And I see a lot of pencil whipping in the world right now, and, and it makes me nervous. And, and that's why I'm predicting a correction in the market. Well, but when you say predicting a correction in the market, this is what I'm confused about. I'm going to circle back. And it's not to be a devil's advocate. I'm really not doing that. I'm just sure. I'm just trying to learn and seeking knowledge myself. You see that, that B and A are going to keep going, but then you're also talking about a correction. So are yeah, you, or are you talk, go ahead. You're just talking about the C class stuff. Yeah, so so let me let me make a, a clarification. I believe that the A's and the B's and the C's all may show some price increase, but there is a huge difference between price and value. And I don't see the value holding because a lot of the underwriting, yes, we may see some prices holding go up, but that also may be just strictly due to inflation which does not increase value. It only increases the dollars that we use to purchase. But if that dollar is worth, worth less, then what is the real value of that asset? And I'm saying there's going to be a correction in value where people realize they've been overly aggressive in their underwriting. Uh, and and they, they really expected to get all of this explosive rent growth to justify the very low cap rate that they purchased it at. And they're not going to realize that rent growth. And they're not going to go into foreclosure. They're just going to get bored. They're just going to wake up one day and go, we're all at work for nothing. And that's where those people are going to start to be willing to sell those assets at a discount. 
from the from the value does that mean that discount is below today's purchase price not necessarily but remember value is going to be based on the income stream that these assets produce that's where i'm saying i think we're going to see cap rates decompress based on the revenue stream that the assets produce i think people are, are overvaluing revenue streams well i think people are overvaluing future and and made up revenue streams. That's what I think we're going to see some stopping of that. Right now, I, I believe that limited partners and, and LP investors are not educated enough to truly be able to underwrite deals. And that a lot of the LP money is really just kind of following the GP and, and just kind of saying, hey, whatever you say, it must be true. I think that's coming to an end. I think LP money is getting infinitely more uh, educated and sophisticated. And as you've pointed out, and I'm pointing out, they're going to start calling out some of these GPs and some of this aggressive underwriting, and it's going to be harder to raise money for those type assets. My prediction. Well, very, very interesting. Well, I'm the unsophisticated LP that's trying to get sophisticated. And, you know, it's funny because when I hear you describe this environment where, you know, you're saying that you, you anticipate that, you know, inflation is going to continue to, you know, uh, be responsible for these asset prices to increase and you're not saying that a hundred percent but you know correct and i and i understand that i guess as an lp that to me is like for every brilliant guy that thinks we're going to see inflation guys that are a hundred times smarter than me there's another group of guys that are uh, they're also a hundred times smarter than me saying that we're not going to have inflation and so i to me that does not like warm my heart up as a rationale to invest and, and nor am i suggesting that you're suggesting that it's just kind of my reaction i, I kind of want the inherent story to be solid as a rock like facts on the ground right now like you're saying let's say you know you're talking about a pref with, with a six percent cash on cash at the beginning and with rents that are maybe even still have room to grow. So you're not, you don't have a lot of risk of that contracting. And a real, you know, that's that, that to me is like, okay, that's enticing at this point. So you've done two, which is fantastic in a year and a half. It really does speak to some integrity around sticking to your guns. What are the nature of those properties? Like, where are they and how big? They're, they're the hundred plus units and they're all in uh, around Atlanta. Uh, well, yes, one's a little South of Atlanta. One was in, uh, up here in Atlanta. So um, good assets, um, you know, they're, they're cash flowing all right. We've not increased rents like we would have liked to have. One of them, we did increase some. Uh, the one that's sort of up in the more core market of Atlanta, we did not really see the rent growth we expected. So that's also given me some pause. We're safe. It's a really good asset in a really good location. We just didn't see some of that rent growth that we were kind of expecting. So that's that's made me slightly nervous on trying to buy something it's based strictly on a performance of purchase. So that's where I've gotten a little bit more cautious. I, I was expecting to do some renovations and raise rents on that one. It didn't really work. We're still making money, but we just didn't completely have the success with the business plan that we thought we would have. Saving grace, location, location, location. Why, why do you think you weren't able to raise the rents as much as you thought? Well, COVID hit really quite frankly, right after we purchased it, uh, within a few months after that, uh, COVID had hit. Um, so that was a bit of a slowdown. Um, and, and I think that rents are going to kind of flatten out going forward. I don't think that we're going to see the rent growth that we've seen over the last two or three years continue over the next two or three years. And certain markets are certainly stronger than others. Uh, you know, I, I think Atlanta has had explosive rent growth 
and is now going to kind of cool that off some and we may not see that aggressive rent growth going forward. So I'm, I'm being more cautious on my underwriting now um, based on, on experience. I do have another question for you, Bill, and this is a devil. I'm warning you. So brace. I love it. I love it. Somebody poke poke the bear. I love it. Let's hear it. All right. This is the poke the bear one because this is something I could like never quite get my head around. I mean, I can and I can't because I hear so many different things. So as you know, like in in especially a guy starting out with houses and you've kind of like you said, yours was kind of linear. You didn't you know, you didn't go from flipping two houses, figure it all out and all of a sudden started syndicating 400 unit deals. I mean, you really kind of put one right. foot in front of the other and really learned it. And so to that end, you understand the the relevance and, and importance of like sub-market block to block. And so when you talk about buying within an hour flight, you're you're talking about markets that are far away. You know, that's a, that's basically you're a pilot, so you know how far a plane goes in, in an hour. <laughs> so right. you know, basically you're talking four to 500 miles. And so how can one be, you know, just super effective in markets that you do, just don't know the block to block? I mean, in my town, for example, in every town, but in my town, like there's this, a couple commercial streets. It's not a big town. I'm in a huge metro area. I'm, I'm in the Bay Area, so it's 8 million people, but I'm in a very small submarket. And there are basically two main streets. And one of the streets, I could just tell you that if you're on one side of the street and if you're, you know, the east or west side of the street and then on the other block, if you're north or south, your business will be impacted by that just because. How can you address that going into other markets? You don't. You don't. (laughs) You are going to be less competitive, less educated and less effective with every single step away from your front door you take. God, I'd, I'd, I'd hug you. You're, you're lucky I'm not there because if, if, <laughs> if I were, I'd hug you and you, you'd, you'd hate that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you, you don't. I mean, you, you really don't. And, and so I, I know that my effective uh, strategy declines exponentially as we move away from our front door. Um, and, you know, and I, I teach and talk a lot about real estate. And that's one thing I always tell people is, look, you, you're competing against one individual in a distant market, the locals. Can you maintain a presence that is competitive with a local buyer? If the answer is no, then that market is not very uh, legitimate for you. It's not impossible. It's improbable. Yeah. And, and you know what? I think that the market has been so frothy and forgiving that, you know, in the past, especially five years for sure, but to some degree, I don't know, eight years or whatever, you know, it's just, there's been a rising tide, man. It's, it's, uh, you know, a don't confuse genius with the bull market kind of thing. So very interesting. Well, you know what? I, I love what you do and, and, and you've got your feet on the ground and you've got some rare humility and, um, that that's fantastic. So Bill, tell me how one were to, uh, could get a hold of you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, you know, I have the book creative cash that's on Amazon uh, that's that's available right now if you want to learn more about creative financing. And if you want to reach out to me personally, uh, email bill at gobroadwell.com. And Broadwell is B-R-O-A-D-W-E-L-L, uh, gobroadwell.com. And the website is broadwellpropertygroup.com. So if you're an investor, if you're looking to do some business with us, uh, go in there. We have a space for investors. Fill that out and we will be in touch with you directly. Well, that is fantastic. And I, and I will probably do that myself. And as they say in court, I have no further questions. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. Excellent. I appreciate you having me on today. Thanks, Bill. (laughs) 